0: Hi, and welcome back to A Feminist Therapist, a podcast at the crossroads of politics and mental health. I'm your host, David Averick, psychotherapist and social worker, broadcasting to you from Baltimore, Maryland. Sorry it's been so long since our last episode. I was taking a little break from mansplaining into the void. Today's installment requires a lot of trigger warnings because we're going to talk about Jeffrey Epstein and other shitbags in order to examine disturbing aspects of human behavior what they call problematic sexuality. This includes discussions of the sexual abuse of minor children. I think these are really important topics, but it doesn't mean that they make for easy listening. So maybe take breaks if you need to, or you can listen with a friend. Don't force yourself to continue listening if it doesn't feel right for you. That part's really important. Also, because of the complexity of today's subject matter, there's a lot of content, so it's not going to all fit in one episode. So this episode, number six, is part one of our conversation about America's Most Cancelled. Let's start with why. Why talk about this stuff? Well, it's like we said in episode one of A Feminist Therapist. Systems that remain unexamined go unchallenged. And Jeff Epstein, just like other problematic cancelled a-holes in American society, for example, Harvey Weinstein, are more than just individual bad actors. They represent a system of assholery. Of course, it's easy for us to demonize them because they are pretty demonic. And, in fact, one of the things we're going to do today is examine the psychological mechanism at play, known as projective identification, which enables us to demonize them. However, when we focus exclusively on the evils of these individual bad actors, we run the risk of failing to notice the invisible social structures that facilitated their abuses because even though Epstein and Weinstein as individual a-holes are out of commission and can no longer cause harm, the social structures that allowed them to act in the ways that they did are unfortunately still intact. These systems have not been torn down, and until we tear them down, we will face an unending flow of future Weinsteins and Epsteins. Side note, obviously as a Jewish person, I am not thrilled at the fact that both of these guys have very Jewish-sounding last names, The good news is that in my professional experience, I have not found Jewish people to be any more or less problematic than other religious groups I've interacted with. It turns out we've all got problems. So the basic answer to the question of why talk about something as awful as the sexual exploitation of minors is that we have to talk about it and learn about it in order to figure out how to prevent it. Personal opinion here, preventing child abuse ought to be our society's absolute top priority. I think that our entire healthcare, educational, and economic apparatus should be oriented toward preventing childhood trauma. This is part of the reason I've spent years providing therapy to perpetrators of sex crimes, and in particular to men who struggle with pedophilia, because I want to help figure out how to prevent abuse from occurring. I've also spent a long time working with survivors of sexual trauma, with women and men who are abused as children or adults, and who as a result have a hard time in their adult relationships. From doing this work, I understand enough about the effects of sexual trauma to have become obsessed with figuring out how to prevent it, how to eradicate it completely from society. And I want us all to be obsessed with that. I want everyone to talk about it all the time, and I don't care if it's a downer. By the way, it's not necessarily the case that somebody who is sexually abused during childhood or adulthood will struggle in their relationships. The reality is that there's no way to predict who's going to be able to experience resilience from trauma and who isn't. Okay, so in grounding a discussion of this complexity, it is always nice to start with data, and it's also nice to start with good news. So the good news is that there is some data which says that this problem is actually getting better, that rates of sexual violence against women and children is decreasing. The bad news is that unfortunately there's no way to know how accurate this data is because something that's well known about sexual violence against both children and grown-ups is that it is hugely underreported. Victims are silenced. They're shamed into not speaking out. And so while I remain sort of optimistically agnostic on the question of whether the problem in aggregate is getting better or worse, For the purposes of this podcast episode, we're going to work from the presumption that the problem still exists, which it does. Now for an unoriginal opinion. In America, we are bad at talking about sex. We're bad at doing sex education for young people. And we're bad at carrying on reasonable conversations about sex as adults. I feel like there's something super American about this. To be fully and completely obsessed by sex on the one hand, as you can tell from all the media that we produce and consume while simultaneously, on the other hand, holding sex as super taboo. The main outcome of this paradoxical way of dealing with the issue of sex is that sex of all kinds is sensationalized, which is to say, a huge deal is made about it, while rational, substantive conversations are avoided. Americans want to have sex, and we want to watch other people have sex, but we don't want to talk about sex. Why? Because that's not sexy. In my therapy practice, for example, I've met a lot of couples that are very groovy and chill and wise and communicative, but nevertheless struggle a lot when it comes to talking about sex. It's kind of just how Americans are. We're sort of the worst. But actually, there's another more sinister reason that we don't talk about sex, which is that doing so could reveal uncomfortable truths about how power is distributed in society. Those who hold power don't want us talking openly about sex. Just like we've seen in our previous investigations of clinical depression, resource hoarding, and addiction, in fact sort of everywhere that we look, the root causes of many social problems frequently turn out to be connected to inequities around the distribution of power. And this is the main thesis of this podcast, that a failure to examine these inequities benefits the people who hold power. This is not an original position, that is a classic feminist insight. In this case, the people who hold power include serial abusers like Jeffrey Epstein, who also not coincidentally happens to be a wealthy cisgender white hetero male. But actually, second side note here, Epstein is technically not a pedophile. He is what you would call a hebephile, which means that he's sexually attracted to pubescent minors. By definition, pedophilia means having a sexual attraction to prepubescent minor children, which totally sucks, more on that later. Okay, right now we're going to move on by debunking a popular myth concerning the sexual abuse of minors. In the fight against childhood sexual abuse, there have been a lot of efforts in the past few decades to educate young children about the risks posed to them by strangers popularly known as stranger danger, it has become gospel among parents and educators that it's very crucial to teach young children from a small age never to trust strangers who may wanna touch their bodies. So that is a good idea in general. And when I have kids, I'm going to teach them that too. But the problem is that according to all the research on childhood sexual abuse, stranger danger isn't the real problem because strangers aren't the ones abusing children. In fact, in 93% of cases of childhood sexual abuse, the abuser is a family member or another adult known to the child. So what does it mean that stranger danger is far, far less of a threat to children than men who are within the family circle? And we're mainly talking about men here because the data shows that women commit only about 5% of all sex offenses. So what it means is that sexual violence against children appears to not be an anomaly, not something extreme or unusual, even though that's how we think about it, but merely one way that power is expressed within a patriarchal system, in this case the family structure. Okay, so what does that statement mean? What are we talking about when we say an expression of patriarchal power? So a patriarchy is defined as a male-dominated power structure. And because cisgender men are the ones committing 95% of all sex offenses, and because 93% of sex offenses against kids take place within the family or close to it, childhood sexual abuse can be understood in terms of men expressing their power, abusing their power, acting how they want. To speak even more concretely, sexually abusive men are behaving in ways that demonstrate an underlying belief, either consciously or unconsciously, that their right to sexual gratification outweighs the rights of other people, in this case, the rights of children not to be abused. This is how childhood sexual abuse is similar to domestic violence, the majority of which is also perpetrated by cisgender men against women and children. The social problems of childhood sexual abuse and domestic violence both represent the fundamental underlying problem of the patriarchy more broadly which is that many men are socialized, which is to say trained from a young age, to believe that their right to get what they want when they want it outweighs the rights of others. For example, women and children and queer people and gender nonconforming people. This is the logic of the patriarchy. And what we can see is whenever that logic is challenged, there is a risk of violence. Another thing we know about the expression of patriarchal power is that frequently it employs a one-two punch. The first punch is the act of violence, the actual harm, and the second punch is the denial of wrongdoing, or what they call the gaslighting. It's very weird to me how you can see the same dynamic, harm and then gaslighting, in so many diverse contexts on both the micro and the macro levels. It's as though it comes naturally to those who seek to maintain an illegitimate stranglehold on power. A macro level example would be the way that older generations and baby boomers have deliberately structured the U.S. economy to benefit themselves and disadvantage younger people through various extractive and gatekeeping mechanisms. Some economists refer to the set of behaviors as kicking away the ladder. That's the first punch. The second punch is when boomers gaslight millennials by calling them lazy, even though young people work crazy long hours for much less money in real terms than boomers did when they were our age. On the micro level in my work with survivors of childhood sexual abuse, what I have frequently seen to be the case is that when sexual violence occurs within a family, the first punch— whether it's perpetrated by a father, grandfather, uncle, stepfather, mother's boyfriend, adult male family friend, older male cousin, etc. And then the victim attempts to speak out, that's when you get the second punch. The victim is silenced, ridiculed, berated, humiliated, and otherwise shut down. And that's because within patriarchal power systems, the opinions of adult males always outweigh the opinions of children, especially female children, especially when that voice threatens the power structure. In my work as a therapist, I have found that this experience of being silenced, that second punch, can be almost as damaging as the actual abuse itself because it teaches the victim that there can be no expectation of justice, that she will get no accountability, no repair of harm done. Sometimes victims are told that they made up the abuse, that no abuse occurred. This, in particular, is a terrible thing for a child to have to deal with, because their brains are still developing. They're still figuring out how reality works. Being gaslit in this way can warp your mind and pit the mind against the body. It can change how you understand the world, how you see people, whether you're able to trust. You know, important things like that. Of course, though it's almost always men perpetrating the abuse itself, it is not always men who are shutting down victims. Mothers, grandmothers, and older sisters do that stuff too. Sometimes that can be connected to a woman having internalized, taking inside and accepted as true, the idea of the patriarchal power structure, that men are in charge and cannot or should not be challenged by women or children. Unfortunately, it is the case that there are women who carry water for the patriarchy and who help prop up the system because in some way the system benefits or rewards them for it. Why act like that? Well, put yourself in the position of this hypothetical mother of an abused daughter. Safety is a fundamental human need. And if you're a woman stuck in an abusive relationship, perhaps your economic options are limited. In a subordinate position within a patriarchal power structure, you know that challenging the abuser will lead to further retaliation, more abuse. So maybe you're choosing the option that you feel is in fact the safest. Alright so let's pause for a second and check in. We have jumped in the deep end and we're talking about some serious stuff. What is your emotional response right now? Just notice where you're at. Are you feeling disgust or shame or anger? My guess is that your response is individualized based on your own personal history with respect to these problems. As we move forward I encourage you to keep an eye on your own emotional response It is really important to examine how we as individuals think about and react to the problem of childhood sexual abuse, because we need to be able to talk about it more than we currently do. So if you're feeling a little overwhelmed or close to it, don't sweat. That is normal and okay. Maybe take a break if that would help. The reason that it's really hard to talk about childhood sexual abuse is because it's something that we never talk about. We're working on changing that. For right now, though, we're going to zoom out a little bit. And talk about things on the macro level sometimes it feels a little bit safer there when we consider the group of individuals known as sex offenders for most of us the easiest thing to do is to sort of shudder quietly and relegate them to a dark dungeon in our minds and perhaps feel reassured that they're on some sort of registry or list where they're being monitored and can't cause further harm the impulse to go in this direction internally is very understandable because of how awful we know sex crime to be. However, it's just not the best way to go for a lot of reasons, both on the macro and micro levels, on the level of society at large and on the level of the individual, including victims and survivors. Some of the macro stuff is connected to what they call cancel culture. So what does being canceled mean? For those who don't know, in contemporary American culture, if you behave in ways that are problematic, that is, If you're racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, classist, or generally oppressive, then you run the risk of being canceled, that is, kicked out of society, losing your status, being publicly shamed. Think of celebrities like Aziz Ansari, Louis C.K., Harvey Weinstein. These are people who used to hold positions of relative social power until their bad behavior toward women came to light. Weinstein is facing jail time for his serious alleged offenses, while the other two have attempted in different ways to engineer their re-entry into viable social culture. Sex offenders, I would argue, are the most canceled men in America. So I'm definitely not the first person from the left or the right to critique cancellation culture, and it's definitely a very convenient position for me to take given that I'm a cisgender white man. Some people on the left critique cancellation because they perceive correctly, in my opinion, that cancel culture is a recapitulation of carceral logic. That is, it's the prison industrial complex played out on Twitter. Of course, that is an overstatement because Twitter is nowhere near capable of inflicting the level of harm that the prison industrial complex is. It's just a metaphor. Carceral logic refers to the judicial philosophy of retribution, The idea that someone who does something wrong deserves punishment, plain and simple. You may be familiar with this way of thinking because it's what all of us have been taught our entire lives. It is rooted in both American culture and the Judeo-Christian morality system, which itself is the basis for American culture. So the idea is that you do bad and then you go to your room. It's how we treat children, and it's also how we treat adult criminal offenders except in the case of adult criminal offenders when we send people to their room in the form of solitary confinement. What we now know from research is that that is one of the most psychologically damaging forms of punishment imaginable and is considered by many international bodies to be a form of torture. It needs to be abolished. So what we also know from data is that the carceral system is not fair. It punishes some people too much and other people too little. Who gets punished and why frequently depends on the system of social hierarchy in place in the United States. Which is to say, rich white men are on top, everyone else is underneath. In its own way, cancellation is all about retribution, even though it might pretend otherwise. If you're problematic and you're canceled, you're kicked out of society and then you're kaput. Except lots of times, just like in the criminal justice system, the more power you have, the easier it is for you to skirt accountability. Sure, Harvey Weinstein ultimately did get canceled, but before that, he got away with his shit for years. Jeffrey Epstein literally was convicted as a sex offender, but he still got to leave jail to go to work at his hedge fund, and then once he got out of jail and was on the sex offender registry, still rubbed elbows with all kinds of rich and powerful assholes like Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, while he continued to mistreat women. It was only after Miami Herald reporter Julie K. Brown started digging deeper into why former Trump labor secretary and noted scumbag Alex Acosta gave Epstein such a sweetheart plea deal that his whole situation started to crumble. On the other hand, when we look at cancel culture, we can see how on a more positive tip, it's a way for people who actually do give a fuck about creating a society where people don't oppress one another and cause harm to hold wrongdoers accountable. Personally, I'm very interested in living in a society without racism and transphobia and ableism and anti-Semitism and misogyny and homophobia and Islamophobia. That sounds like a pretty dope society. And on one level, cancel culture operates as a mechanism to move us closer to that vision by naming harm in real time as it occurs, rather than allowing it to get swept under the rug, which is what has almost always happened with instances of oppression in this country historically. And in lots of places, it still does. Racism goes unpunished. Transphobia is still normal. Homophobia is baked into how society operates. Hating Jewish people and Muslims are fine. That's how America has traditionally operated. And cancel culture is one way for young people to put their collective foot down and be like, no, fuck that. And I'm into that because adequate accountability for having caused harm is essential for having relationships that are based on trust. And so while cancellation is about moving us toward the world we want, it's also about people from groups who have historically not had the power to name harms that were inflicted on them by more powerful groups to reclaim that right, to claim that their experiences are valid, to claim that harm done to them counts as something that's bad and deserves punishment. This represents a very important and crucial shift in the balance of how power is distributed within American society. And if you have not noticed, I'm all about redistributing power. Social psychologists have known for a long time that the act of excluding, punishing, or ostracizing somebody, for example, by canceling them, has the effect of strengthening in-group solidarity. That is, everyone agreeing that X person is racist helps the rest of us feel more connected as a community of people who are anti-racist. This dynamic is connected to a therapy concept called multiple function, which means that human behavior rarely serves only one purpose or solves just one problem. An easy way to understand multiple function is to look at an instance of homophobia that I was exposed to when I was in middle school. This was back in the mid-90s, and on some TV show or another I had seen a female actor who was wearing the bottom of her shirt tied in a knot on the side. I was the shortest kid in my grade for all the grades. And even the smallest size of the t-shirts that they gave out for gym class, this was a private school where we had uniforms, so they gave us gym clothes. Even the smallest size was too big on me. And so naturally, I had the idea to tie my shirt in a knot on one side, which solved the problem of the shirt going nearly down to my knees. I thought it was a great look. Later that day, back when we were in our little jackets and ties, I was told by a teacher to deliver a message to another teacher's class. So I would go to that classroom, This is the grade ahead of me, and one of the kids in the class goes, hey, it's the boy who ties his shirt in a knot, and everyone laughed at me, and it totally sucked. So you don't have to feel sad for me because I'm over it, but examining that instance of oppression through the lens of multiple function, we can see that there were some very interesting dynamics at play. One of them was homophobia, of course, in that I was made an object of ridicule for my gender performance, that is, failing to be sufficiently masculine by dressing in a way that was considered feminine. So the boy who said the thing was reinforcing his position socially as superior to me due to masculinity, indicating my inferiority for acting in a way that was feminine. Effectively, he was canceling me. This hierarchy of masculine over feminine itself is, of course, based on sexism and misogyny, because in order to get in trouble for acting like a girl, you have to believe that being a boy is better than being a girl. But there were other layers there too, because it happened in front of a large group of other boys, this was an all-boys school, and everyone else laughed. They were all able to join with the bully and identify with him, separating themselves from me as effeminate and reinforcing their own positions as masculine. So the solidarity of their group was reinforced through the act of exclusion and homophobia. The bully canceled me, and everyone approved of that cancellation, which brought them closer by allowing them to define themselves as masculine in opposition to the object of ridicule, me. But there was another dynamic going on as well. So this was a mostly white, super waspy Christian school, which tended to have one black kid and one Jewish kid per grade. I was the Jewish kid in my grade, and the boy who ridiculed me happened to be the black kid in his grade. So I have no idea what his experience of being black was like at this school. Probably it wasn't great. And In retrospect, I'm left to wonder whether his bullying of me for being femme was in part one way for him to manage his anxiety around the experience of vulnerability with respect to race, whether canceling me for being gay was a way for him to win the favor of a room full of white boys in the class, which perhaps might have helped him feel more safe as a black person in a super lily-white environment. Because within a hierarchical system of identity-based oppression like we have here in America, Minorities are frequently forced to interact with one another in ways that are super fucked up in order to access safety or security for themselves. This is just a feature of living in an oppressive, unequal culture. Stuff like this happens every day. We can see it, for example, in the way that immigrants, frequently Hispanic Latinx immigrants, are blamed for quote-unquote stealing the jobs of other minority groups whereas actually their jobs were stolen by a post-industrial neoliberal economic system based on automation and offshoring, while simultaneously dismantling the welfare state and social safety net, which denies all low-income people a dignified quality of life, all of that in order to further enrich the wealthiest members of our society. That's sort of how America is set up since the 70s. But because mainstream framing of political issues in our culture takes place through a neoliberal and neoconservative prism. And because the media apparatus, except for some outlets like Democracy Now!, have been completely captured by the neoliberal political machine and the businesses that fund their advertisements, and even though poor people may sense that their human rights to housing, work, and health care are being violated, frequently vulnerable people lack the vocabulary to articulate it, or perhaps they've also internalized what the system has taught them and you, and me, many, many times, which is that if you don't have a job in a house and health care, then that's your own damn fault, so you should blame yourself. Or, if you don't want to blame yourself, blame an immigrant. But don't blame the system because America is the greatest country in the world. But whatever you do, do not blame the cisgender, hetero, white men who control the system and who benefit from it immeasurably while they remain completely invisible to us in corporate boardrooms or inaccessible on Capitol Hill where they quietly take meetings with lobbyists who are getting paid massive amounts of dough by the men in the boardrooms. That's just some basic American shit. But back to carceral logic. We can contrast carceral logic with another model, a better model, known as restorative justice. One of the features of retribution is an obsessive focus on the crime itself. Whereas restorative justice proposes that we look at the harm caused by the crime through the lens of human relationships, and that that should be the focus. Restorative justice proposes that a person who commits a crime has done something to damage his relationship with somebody in the community, and hence to the community's ability to trust them. It follows that repair to the relationship must be made, and as in all relationships where harm has occurred, accountability for wrongdoing is the foundation for repair. Only once the harm has been not just acknowledged, but understood for what it is, only once the offender is able to recognize exactly how and why his behavior was harmful to the victim, can he truly be accountable for it. Once he's fully accountable, that's when a conversation about repair can take place. This is, I think, where cancel culture in particular and sex crime policy more broadly gets it wrong. Because... When a person is banished from society for committing a crime, it tends to excuse the offender and the society from having to do the work of accountability, that is, figuring out exactly how and why the crime came to be committed. I am being sort of unfair because within cancel culture, there often is analysis of the impact of the crime on the victim, and we frequently do get to hear from victims, which is very important. But this is not the same thing as fully interrogating how a person came to be problematic, Because the thing about Aziz Ansari and Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein is that these people have a lot of positive characteristics as well. The work of their life has brought a lot of people a lot of joy. And those things that they created were authentic expressions of their individuality, just as the behaviors that led to their cancellation, and in the case of Weinstein and Epstein incarceration, were also authentic expressions of their true selves. It must necessarily be the case, therefore, that these men are complex, that they embody both positive and problematic aspects, which is to say that they are just like the rest of us. They're capable of causing joy and they're capable of causing harm. What we ought to be curious about is the environment and the context that allowed them to act out in the ways that they did. In all three cases, this context has to do with misogyny and patriarchy and rape culture. If that phrase is confusing to you, go back and check out episode one of A Feminist Therapist. We go pretty deep into understanding rape culture in that episode. And the analysis deployed in this episode is going to assume that you have a basic working understanding of the idea of rape culture. But just in one sentence, rape culture refers to a social system where the mistreatment of women by men is not taken seriously, which has the effect of increasing the likelihood that sex crimes against women will occur. If we look at the phenomena at hand, the cancellation of Aziz Ansari, and the bullying that I got in middle school for not being masculine enough, we can note that there is another psychological phenomenon at play that is worth exploring. The name for this phenomenon is projective identification. Probably you've heard of projection, which is like, if I go out wearing my new shirt and everyone I'm run into, I'm all in my head like, OMG, they're loving this new shirt and they're so jealous of me right now. So that is to say, I'm super into my new shirt, and that's the lens that I look at the world through, but I do it unconsciously. I don't know that I'm doing it. My obsession with my shirt is obscuring my view of reality. That's projection. Everyone does this sometimes. Projective identification is more sinister. It has to do with taking a part of yourself that you can't tolerate, maybe because I'm ashamed of it, or I'm afraid of it, or I'm anxious about it, or I hate it, and then I find that quality in somebody else. I do this because I need to disavow this part of myself. I need it not to be true. So one way to deal with this problem is to just deny it outright, pretend that the truth about me isn't true. But other times, denial alone is insufficient because the problem is too massive or too scary. So I look for another way to deal with it. And what I do is I take this thing about myself that I hate and I locate it in another person and then I punish them for it. And that makes me feel better. That's projective identification. It can play out in all types of ways, on both the micro and the macro levels, interpersonally and on the level of society. Individual human relationships always reflect how society functions and vice versa. Macro and micro always are reflections of one another. And on the macro level, we can look at the functioning of the American criminal justice system as a major example of projective identification. By the way, I did not come up with this analysis. I got it from my therapist, Teresa it works like this. On a group level, white people have this deep need to see themselves as virtuous. And the corollary to that statement is that they have an inability to tolerate the idea that they aren't virtuous, that they are capable of causing great harm. I am not an expert in why this is such a thing with white people, but I suspect that it probably has to do with Christianity, the need to feel Christ-like, because Christ didn't sin and all that stuff. In my experience as a Jew, my people tend to be a bit better at recognizing that being without sin is not a reasonable expectation, which is why we have a whole holiday dedicated to making up for your sins. Not that Jews are perfect. There's a lot of very painful hypocrisy in my community as well, particularly among more observant Jews, and not just with respect to the Israeli occupation of Palestine. But anyway, Because of how their religion is set up, white Christians need to think of themselves as containing only virtue, notwithstanding buckets and buckets of evidence to the contrary, for example, the Inquisition, the Holocaust, imperialism, colonization, genocide, slavery, Jim Crow, you name it. Though definitely some American Jews also participated in slavery and Jim Crow. Because white people are, like everybody, capable of causing great harm as well as great good. And I know I'm generalizing here, so not all white people and all that, but I'm making inferences based on the larger data set. So because whites cannot tolerate the complexity of this reality, this notion that impulses to cause harm and be bad coexist inside of us along with the good stuff, whites use projective identification as a tool to seek relief from this psychological and spiritual discomfort. Now ask yourself. What group of people do whites have on hand who can conveniently embody the aspects of their own identities, for example, criminality or laziness, and then be punished for it? Well, black and brown people, of course. By creating a culture that systematically targets black and brown people for incarceration, punishment, and even death for their alleged criminality, White people can point to them and experience relief at the fact that those people contain and embody the criminality that whites refuse to acknowledge in themselves. This is projective identification. It's a way of seeking psychological relief from the unconscious fear that you yourself are bad. So what we're going to do next is take this idea of projective identification that we've developed and apply it to how we understand sex crime policy in America. But we're going to stop this episode right here because we've gone on for quite a while and there's more yet to talk about. So please make sure to tune into episode seven of A Feminist Therapist, where we will conclude our conversation about America's Most Cancelled. I very much appreciate the time you've taken to listen to this podcast. If you'd like to be in touch, I welcome your comments and questions. And you can email me at afeministtherapist at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and have a special day.